we welcome you to the Truth Simply Put, our broadcast and teaching series at the Basilea Commission. You're about to receive God's unadulterated word, brought to you by Pastor Alexander Victor. Challenging, uplifting, and provoking you to new dimensions in your kingdom walk. And now, today's message. Christ-conscious believer is bound by and yielded to God's word in the light of Christ only. We took time two weeks ago to to establish a definition, a working definition of the word of God, what the word of God is, who the word of God is, you know, his will, his counsel, his essence as collectively captured in the spirit-inspired writings of the New Testament, um, that together, of of the Bible rather, that together reveal um, Christ in the hearts and minds of the readers and here, as we establish that the word of God is his being, his, his essence as revealed in Christ, right? Through the lens of whom the written word is read. That means that right now, to understand God, to understand the word of God is to read it through the lens of Christ. To read it through the lens of the prophecies concerning Christ. To read it through the lens of the statements concerning Christ. And to read it, importantly, through the lens of all of that as is fulfilled in Christ. To read it in the light of of the lens of Christ, to see the things that were written that were concerning him and how those things have been fulfilled in him so that we are not caught in the trap of trying to fulfill by our own effort or even by praying to God to do something for us that is already done in Christ. So the prayer of the believer is not necessarily the prayer of the performance of God as as unfortunately a lot of us are praying, but really uh, the prayer of the believer is and should be the illumination of the understanding of the believer into the fullness of all that God has done for us in Christ. It, it, it will amaze you how many people say they are believers, how many Christians despise the work of God in Christ. It will, it will shock you. How many Christians, how many believers downplay the work of God in Christ, downplay the far-reaching nature, you know, of, of God's work in Christ. And, 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 and so the prayer of, 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 of the New Testament prayer for the believer is that the believer gets to come into an understanding and illumination and epignosis of what is already theirs in Christ. You know, Paul tells the Corinthian church, I think in 2 Corinthians 2 or so, he says, all things are yours. Why are you dragging over stuff? All things are yours. All things are yours. You know, he prays for them and in also the Second Corinthians and he tells them, he says, that God will cause you having all sufficiency in all things. God will cause all grace to abound towards you. All grace. All grace. That you having all sufficiency in all things might abound unto every good work. Every good work. So it's a function of how much of our understanding or the eyes of our understanding is enlightened to come into that much that God has done for us in Christ. So we read the word of God, we read the word of God as through the lens of Jesus. You know, we, we, we looked at Luke 24, how Jesus, the resurrected Christ on the, on the road to Emmaus, came upon those two disciples and began to take them through the, the law, which is Moses, and the prophets and the Psalms to highlight the things that were spoken concerning him. You know, and so when you read the Psalms, you always see a parallel. David is talking about a situation or he thinks he's talking about a situation in his life and he's, you know, saying stuff and, and unbeknownst to him, he's speaking prophetically about what was to come upon Jesus? So when you're going to read David's stuff and you don't read that in the light of Christ to understand that David was prophesying as moved by the Spirit of God about Christ, you begin to want to appropriate things unto yourself that are already yours in Christ. So that's important. Okay, we looked through a, a bunch of scriptures and then we went on to establish that the Word of God is His very being as is revealed in Christ, right? And then we went on further to say the Word of God is Christ. 
yeah, according to John chapter 1, according to 1 John chapter 1 and a host of other places, right? Revelation 19, on his style was written a name, which is the word of God, right? We saw all of that. And then we went even further to, to establish that the end result, therefore, of the word of, of God in a believer is Christ. Christ fully formed in the believer. Christ indwelling the believer. The word for dwell means to take residence in and settle. You know, there's a difference between squatting in a place, even if you're alone. You how somebody tells you, well, you know, I, I can't help you right now, but I can give you a place to stay for the meantime. And so you don't quite settle, you don't quite, you know, paint, you don't quite, there's stuff that you don't quite do because you know that you're not, you're not settled in the place. And the word dwell is not as though he were coming in to take residence in you for the first time, but he's coming in to settle and, and do whatever he will, will and do in you according to his great pleasure. So we went through all of that and said the end, of re, the end result of the word of God is Christ. We said Christ is the outcome of the word of God received understood and practiced all right christ is the end result in the believer of the word of god received the word of god understood and the word of god practiced okay and then we went on last week to talk about how the word of god is given for our obedience to it right james 125 the word of god is given for our obedience to it and then the word um, um, in as we see in Luke 125 Romans 8 and um, Revelation 3 and Luke 18 Luke 11 28 we see the word for blessed blessed is the one you know when they came in Luke and said that oh blessed are the, are the breasts that, that, that fed you blessed, blessed is the womb that bore you and Jesus was like yeah 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 I know but much more than that blessed is the one that hears this word and does it the word blessed is the word there makario so we took time last week to explore right and establish the difference between Makarios and eulogio and that was profound for a lot of people so you don't get to mix up English when it talks about a blessing that you already have and a blessing that you can receive by doing certain things and that therefore means that in Christ every believer has the same eulogio because Christ is the eulogio right Christ is the promise the Holy Spirit is the promise that's what was promised to Abraham that's the gospel that was preached to Abraham um, um, from Galatians 3 quoting his encounters with God starting from Genesis 12 Genesis 15 Genesis 17 Genesis 22 you know when he culminated at at Mount Moriah at, at the sacrificing of Isaac you know all the encounters that Abraham had with God the covenant that God caught supposedly with Abraham that Abraham had no business in you know all of that and and god made him a promise and says in your seed in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed in your seed one shall all the nations of the earth be blessed and sometimes we assume that uh, that seed is isaac but hebrews 11 makes it very clear that these all you know including the father of faith you know these all died in faith not having received the promise so clearly as far as abraham was concerned the promise wasn't Isaac. And then Paul explains that in Galatians when he says to your seed, he said to your seed, sperma, not seeds as in spermatozoa, and that seed is Christ. So Christ, when God was having, and this is beautiful, every conversation, because you, you might want to think, how, according to Galatians 3 and 8, how did God preach the gospel to Abraham? How did the scriptures, that's actually how the Bible puts it, how Paul puts it, that the scripture, having foreseen this, the scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham. And that's interesting because at the time of God's encounters with Abraham or Abraham's encounters with God, there was no written scripture. There was no written scripture. Even there was no law because, you know, Paul again makes it clear in that narrative that the law came 430 years after Abraham's encounter with God and therefore it cannot make the promise of no effect. Isn't that beautiful? 
Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. I'm just trying to do a quick recap. Galatians 3 and 8. Quick recap. And the scripture. <laughs> my, 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 my. And the scripture, foreseeing that God will justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. What was the gospel that was preached to Abraham? In you, because it says beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. In you all the nations shall be blessed. The scriptures preach the gospel to Abraham. The scriptures. The scriptures. And at the time the scriptures preached the gospel, there was nothing written. There was no graphe. That's what it means, right? The written word in the Greek. There was no graphe. Yeah? Over that. Now, some people render it, you know, differently. And they said that God, God preached the scripture to Abraham, you know, as, sorry, God preached the gospel to Abraham as written in the scriptures, you know, but it is the scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham, you know, the scripture, the scripture, the scripture. That's, that's interesting. And what was the scripture that was preached? What was the gospel that was preached to Abraham? In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed in thy seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The scripture preached the gospel to Abraham. And the gospel that Abraham heard was that in you all the nations shall be blessed. In thy seed. And that seed is Christ. The word of God. Okay. He is the word of God. So every believer has the eulogio. Every believer has come into the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So every believer has the promise fulfilled. Okay, as far as God's covenant with Abraham is concerned, every believer has the promise of God fulfilled. The promise of God is fulfilled in Christ. We have the blessing. We have the promise. However, there are benefits that make you enviable, that brings you into favor with God and men, that come at the place of obedience to God's word. In other words, to disobey God's word is to rob yourself of certain benefits that accrue with being a believer. To disobey God's word, to put yourself in opposition to God's word, is to rob yourself of certain benefits that you could enjoy in particular areas of your life as a believer. And that's what sets out one person's, the robustness of one person's faith, the joy of salvation that they enjoy from another. Somebody, is, somebody has no issues doing whatever God says. Somebody has no issues abandoning whatever God says they should abandon. Somebody has no issues giving whatever God says they should give. Somebody has no issues getting up and leaving when God says get up and leave. Somebody has no issues sleeping when God says you should sleep, even though it's time for you to work and vice versa. And somebody else feels like, yeah, I got this figured out. And so there's a level of protection, there's a level of favor, there's a level of advantage. There's a level of, of an edge that this person who is obedient to God's word in the light of Christ enjoys that this other person might not. Even though both of them are sons of God, heirs of God, and heirs of the Father, and joint heirs with the Son. Earthly manifestations will differ according to the measure of personal obedience. Earthly manifestations will differ according to the measure of personal obedience. We're all sons of God. But then somebody will, some people will envy some others or some others will look enviable in the sight of others by virtue of their level of, of engagement, their level of yieldedness to God's word. It's the same thing that happens even in your, in your, in your parents' house. You and your siblings are both, you know, heirs of your father. But you notice that sometimes there's a particular person or people that your, your father or mother might prefer to send because they give less stress. 
your parents know. So if, if they want the dishes to be really washed, they know who to tell. Wash these dishes before I come back. If they want it close to be washed, they know. The person that likes to play ten-ten and cook, play, play soup, you know, or likes to sleep and not wake up, no matter what is happening, da-da-da-da-da, you know, that person doesn't get much to do. And then after a while, that person has to feel like, yo, my dad is not, you know, um, doing this. My dad is not doing that. My dad is not doing the other. It's just the way it is. People enjoy benefits according to the levels of obedience. Even though sonship is not a function of performance. We took time to establish that last week. The word is given for obedience to it. So we went through all of that and we established that the word of God is for application. A believer yielded to God's word understands that with the word of God rightly divided, there can be no mixture, right? That's what we, we, we left off last week. There can be no mixture. You know, God spoke in Hebrews 1, we see from verse 1 to 3, that in time past, you know, God spoke in diverse ways, in diverse manners to our fathers through the prophets. You know, but now in these last days, now in these last days, has spoken to us through the Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, you know, all of that. So in these last days, God has spoken... Th- um, to us expressly from the written word expressing the logos the son okay and therefore you can't mix the law and the gospel you can't mix the law and the gospel we took time then to go through galatians chapter one explained what the false gospel was which is not another and then climaxed in in chapter three where paul is saying who has who has bewitched you did you receive these things by the workings of the law or by the hearing of faith, we went through all of that, okay? And then we now concluded that to interpret how much more fruitlessly practice the law outside the revelation of Jesus Christ is to walk oblivious and therefore in disobedience to the full counsel of God. That brings us up to speed to where we are today. We're still on that on that point. The Christ conscious believer is yielded to and is bound by God's word in the light of Christ only, okay? Second point, you can't on, on that, your second sub point, if you may. All right, you can't mix the word with human traditions and philosophies. You cannot mix the word with human traditions and philosophies. I repeat for the third time, you cannot mix the word, the gospel, with human traditions. And philosophies. And this is a very, very dicey one. This is a very touchy one for those of us that, that grew up in, in, in Christian settings where culture, human culture, and, and traditional culture sits side by side, supposedly, or is supposed to cohabit um, peacefully with the gospel. Uh, you cannot be drawing from one and drawing from the other at the same time. Look at Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. Hallelujah. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to go from verse 1. I hope you have your Bibles. It's a Bible study. Okay, I'm just waiting for these guys to pop up so I can have access to all the translations. But I'll read read in the New King James if you're there from verse 1 right through to verse 10. Colossians chapter 2 from verse 1. For I want you to know... What a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, this is Paul writing to the Colossian church, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all reaches of the fullness of understanding. (laughs) That their hearts may be encouraged, 
being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Four, now I say this lest anyone shall deceive you with persuasive words. Now I say this lest anyone shall deceive you with persuasive words. Mark that. Five, for though I am absent in the flesh, Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. 6. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Beware, lest anyone cheat you with philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. <laughs> Let me open a few things and I'll show you. And not according to Christ. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through the philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The word philosophy is from the Greek word philosophia. Yeah, pretty much, you know, it's just the suffix, right? The end one that changes a little bit. Philosophia, like Sophia. And what does Sophia mean, if you remember in this house? Wisdom. From the root word, sophos, right? Philo, philosophia, yeah? Philo is, is, is the, the, the word from which you get the, the, the Greek word phileo, which suggests friendly or contemporary, you know, like an ally, right? So it's a compound word, philosophia. And it means wisdom um, in in the sense, in his human sense, or, hu or wisdom that is based on the thoughts of another person. Hence, philo. Does that make sense? I'm trying to give you a very simple um, definition of the, of the mashup. It's a mashup word, you know, compound word. Philo, Sophia. Sophia, wisdom. Philo, as influenced by, or as generated by a fellow. Sounds nice, isn't it? Philo. <laughs> philo, fellow, you know. So that's it. So it, um, the, the, the um, Strong's Dictionary def defines philosophia as secular wisdom. Secular wisdom. So not philosophy in the sense of its intellectual study or, or subject matter, but philosophia in the scripture from the, from the Greek refers to sensual wisdom. What you, what you came into the knowledge of on account of somebody else's preferences, somebody else's opinion, somebody else's uh, um, studying, somebody else's suggestions, you know, somebody else. Of course, it has to be somebody that you, you place some degree of value upon. In other words, it has to be somebody that has the ability to exert some sort of influence over you. Hence, philo. Yeah? Philo. Not phino. <laughs> Okay, another meaning of philosophia, watch this carefully. 
another meaning of philosophia is to love your own thoughts at the expense of God's word. Philosophia. To love one or loving one's own thoughts at the expense of God's word. And it's interesting, you know, how scripture looks. I mean, the Greek considers something um, dangerous that we consider a subject matter. But <laughs> that's story for another day. Because another meaning of philosophia means the vain pursuit of knowledge. The vain pursuit. Have you noticed why sometimes people study philosophy and they come out having lost their minds? They start off okay and they come out having lost their minds. Because philosophia is the vain pursuit. And, and this is not me before you say power is, is insulting uh, philosophy. How can power go on and be? No, no, I'm, I'm, go and check it. <laughs> Philosophia. Philosophy, instead of with a Y, just put an I, A at the end. The, and it's used in the New Testament to refer to the vain pursuit of wisdom. That is the pursuit of truth apart from the revelation of God's word. That's philosophy. The pursuit of truth apart from the revelation of God's word. And the, re the revelation of God's word is as seen in who? Christ. So basically, knowledge apart from Christ is philosophy. And philosophy, not in the sense of the, what you went to study in school, but in the sense of any, any influence of knowledge that comes outside what God's word has laid down in Christ. Any attempt to come into knowledge outside the revelation of Christ is philosophy because it's a vain pursuit. It's a vain pursuit. Now, against that backdrop, thank you. Against that backdrop, you, you read Colossians chapter 2 again. I'm not going to rush this. I don't have to sound like I'm exciting you. Just so you understand what we're getting. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Philosophy. You understand that now? Beware lest anyone cheat you with their own opinion of what knowledge is at the expense of God's word. Beware lest anyone come to you with sweet words that are the result of a vain pursuit of knowledge apart from Christ. Beware lest anyone come to you with knowledge that is based on experiences Somebody posted something recently and it troubled my spirit. I've learned how over the years how to mind my business on Facebook. And, and he posted something that was disturbing for me. It basically questioned the eternal security of the believer and suggested that the believer can unbelieve their way out of salvation. You can willingly lay down your salvation and there's nothing God can do for you. And he quoted a a, a vision that an older, now late man of God had. And people began to comment. You know, of course, you quoted scripture and everything. But he began to comment. And a couple of people said something that, you know, caught my attention. Something along the lines that one of them says, and I quote, Should we then take this person's vision as scripture? And that was the million dollar question. Because everything about a man's seeming encounter with God is subjective. It's subjective. And that's where philosophy comes in. Years ago, I was producing on behalf of my father. I was producing a client from one of them churches back in the day. I've shared this story before in the studio. He traveled from another city, hours to record. And, and, and as I started correcting, his songs had a lot of grammatical errors. 
So I will stop and I will play and I will stop. I'm like, no, no, no. You know when you feel like every single word is shooting you and is, is pricking you. And I'm like, ah, stop, 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 stop. Bring out all your lyrics. Let's correct it. My brother started to fight with me. He was older than me. He was bigger than me. You know, he was fiercer than me. He was like, no, you can't change anything. I said, why? He said, this is exactly how the Holy Spirit gave me. I said, bros, the Holy Spirit does not speak wrong English. He doesn't speak wrong English. Even if you heard the Holy Spirit, your interpretation of what he said has become subject to your level of intellect and your command of communication. And if there are any errors, as it were, I've said this before, in the, in the reading of the Bible as, as compiled by men who were written as moved by the Holy Spirit, it will be subject to, that's why you notice Peter's writings begin to go from one wing over time into another wing. Because he, God had done stuff, they had seen stuff, but it was still subject to the understanding and therefore their dissemination of what they understood. I doesn't speak wrong English. So every man's encounter, as it were, with God is subjective. We, that's why we don't preach the gospel based on our testimony. We don't preach the gospel based on our testimony. We don't preach the gospel based on what the gospel did for us as individuals. Because that's subjective. Somebody could have come to the altar or answered your altar call or even met and heard the, the actual gospel on the street and gotten his deliverance right there from addiction. Somebody else gets it, receives the gospel and comes to church on Sunday still full of the addiction. Doesn't make them any less saved in, 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 their, in their reality than somebody else who's got his own deliverance instantly because encounters are subjective. Are you following me tonight? Encounters are subjective. And that's where philosophies start to creep in. You had a vision, you saw gold dust in your hand. And therefore you now come to a meeting. And you now start to create an expectation where because you had an encounter, and it might have been real. It's you and God that knows. Even Paul says, I know of a man, 2 Corinthians 12, who was caught into heaven. Whether in the body or in the, in the body, not in the body, I don't know. He could, he say knows. God knows. God came to ask Ezekiel in 38 of that book, son of man, prophesy to these dry bones. Can these dry bones live again? He said, I, mean, I don't know you, you know. <laughs> and thou knowest. Says God knows. So, so you and God that know. Jesus appeared to you through the wall of your house in Anantica, and he was wearing, and his beard was long and black, and and he, and he had two candles at the bottom, and at the bottom he had two beads on the bottom of each of the of the two candles, you know, and he there and he was wearing, you know, slippers, that kind of slippers that they, that Alfred Karakwe makes, you know, you now wear the slippers, and then he was now wearing a long flowing robe. That's your, that's your Jesus. It is dangerous, an antichrist, to, be want, to want to foist that over or foist that down the throats of God's people as what should be the benchmark of the encounter with God. That's, that becomes philosophy. Are you seeing what I'm saying? That cannot be doctrine. You prayed for six hours and, and God answered you. The Lord told you, you know what, go and uh, give your pastor an offering when you had it, your, your whatever. And you give a pastor an offering. That doesn't make it doctrine. It doesn't make it doctrine. It doesn't mean that you have to now foist it on somebody else. Because in doing that, you begin to create doctrines and dogmas that are anti-scriptural, even if they were based on your seeming 
encounter with God. We don't preach encounters. We preach the gospel. We don't preach personal testimonies of conversions. We preach the gospel. Uh, listen, everybody has a story. Everybody has got a story. Everybody's got stuff that God has done for them in Christ. But that's not what we preach. Paul says, I, I, I resolved, to, he told the Corinthian church, I resolved to know nothing else among you other than Christ and him crucified. He said, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ, not philosophy. We don't preach philosophy. We don't preach philosophia, vain pursuit of knowledge outside the revelation of Christ. And you see, this generation and the one that is rapidly coming up behind it is one that has been so destroyed, is fraught with the mixture of the gospel and philosophy. The mixture of the gospel. And so, so you, you begin to look at church growth in terms of numerical strength. You begin to look at church growth, power of a man of God in, in terms of miracles that he does. When you are yourself that is looking for a miracle, are actually the miracle worker, not God. You're the one. This sign shall follow them that are ordained. This sign shall follow them that went to Bible school. This sign shall follow them that are, are commissioned to leadership authority in church. This sign shall follow them that believe. Blanket authority for every believer. Remember that when we dealt with the priesthood of all believers? Blanket authority for all believers. So it's not, it's not the working of miracles that sets up a man of God as more advanced than another. If anything, it shows you what you have that you're not using. That therefore makes you subservient to the man of God. We don't preach encounters. We don't preach personal testimonies. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And he who prophesies does what does that for what purpose? First Corinthians 14, for exhortation, ex admonition, and comfort. Admonition and exhortation, building the believer, edifying the believer, raising the believer. And that comes from the preaching of the gospel. We don't mix the word of God with philosophia. We don't mix the word of God with somebody's subjective encounter. The Lord showed up, showed up to me. And the Lord told me that we should pour water, drink water in a glass. Can the Holy Spirit tell you that? Honestly, yes. But if he told you that, guess who it was for? You. Keep it to yourself. Bring it to God's people. And try to create dogmas out of it. That's why we have all the confusion we have and all that denominationalism has done. You start to speak to someone, the first thing they ask you is, which church do you attend? Oh, new generation church. Oh, old generation church. Oh, I know that one. What church do you attend? Redeem. Oh, oh, what church do you attend? Christ. Ah, no, no, no. Pastor Chris, I knew him. And even policeman stopped us the other day and said, long time ago, we're traveling in the south. And they said, we're pastors. We said, we're pastors. We're traveling to minister something. The man pointed his gun at us and said, you're under arrest. I'm not going to let you go from here until you bring me Pastor Chris to a kilometer. I want to meet him. <laughs> what he consigned fish with raincoat. <laughs> and, he, and he kept us there. He said, you say you say you're pastors, eh? You say you're pastors. Me, I want to meet Pastor Christian Kilome. Just because you had <laughs> you had a gun. <laughs> Hallelujah. And Sika says, Paul had an encounter, but he only mentioned it when it was necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Hallelujah. Praise God. So we don't, we don't mix philosophy. Our generation has mixed a lot of philosophy, a lot of personal encounters. I was with the Lord. Three days ago, I was in Canada, and two days before that, I was in Australia. And, and the day before that, I was in Congo. And while in my hotel room, at this point, we don't know the, where, the, the hotel room you are referring to, whether it's the hotel room in Canada, the hotel room in, 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 in Congo, or in one in Australia. We don't even know how you did the journeys, or even the one that is now here. We don't know. So, and then the Lord spoke to me. And he said, now, again, mark my words, I am not attacking or disputing God's encounters with you or your encounter. Because really, it's you encountering God. It's you. I don't have a problem with that. But don't come and start to preach that. We preach the gospel. We don't mix the gospel with philosophy. We don't mix the gospel with, and I've taught my people in this house, we, when we're dealing with doctrinal issues and we ask the question, you don't respond and say, I think, you know, you know, my, my understanding is the way I... No, no, no. There's no such thing as divergent understandings when it comes to God's word. That's why the church has split along doctrinal and, and denominational circles. Calvinists, you know, uh, uh, Alvinists, and what's the other one? Athanasius, his people, you know, and, 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 and everybody else. This list has just jumped out of my head. Because we are going according to individual subjective interpretation and understanding of Scripture. As opposed to what the Scripture says of itself. What the Scripture says of himself. Hear ye him, God commanding them, suggests that the word was speaking. So hear what the word is speaking. Because Jesus says, I do not speak of myself. It's what I hear the Father speak that I speak to you. And even when the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of truth, even he, the Holy Spirit, has no right to speak of himself. Because that will be him contradicting the Father and the Son. He is the Holy Spirit because he's the Spirit of the Father. And he's the Holy Spirit because he's the Spirit of the Son. Because the Father is the Son and the Son is the Father. One same Spirit. He cannot speak apart from the will of the Father as explained in Christ, who is the explanation of God. He will, he will take of me, Jesus promised them in John 16, I believe. He will take of me, that spirit of truth, because I am the way, I am the life, I am the truth. I will, he will take of me and he will give to you. So there cannot be divergent understandings. The way you understand it is different. The way I understand it is there's no divergent understanding. It is what scripture said, what scripture spoke that we hear. And if there's a problem, the problem is, lies with our hearing. And that's when we are trying to philosophize the word of God instead of hearing the word of God as he spoke it. Are you following me? Instead of hearing the word as he spoke it. We're wanting to hear the word of God as subjected to our own hearing ability. Remember, you are what you see. And the Lord showed me an analogy Many years ago, it, it remains fresh. I've said it everywhere in the world. I've preached at one time or the other. As, uh, growing up as kids, I don't know if you guys still have it now, but it's, even if you do, it's not as fun as it was because now in this era of, of three-year-olds using tablets and phones and iPads, you know, you know, it's a jet age. But when, when I was growing up, um, around Christmas time, there is this wonderful fancy rabbit glasses, you know, that, that we got, you know, and they have a rabbit on either side. And they're different colors. Now, if you had a house where you had multiple siblings, the only way to prevent World War One or Two or Three was to make sure that everybody got a different color. Their pair. So if you had a green pair, you know, you know that your pair is green. 
and then your other brother's pair is red. You know what I mean? And your other sister's uh, 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 color is blue and the other person's color is purple. And everybody's forming and filling, you know, with their, with their glasses. And then the Lord told me one day, because you see when the person, the person that has the red glasses with the red lenses, when you wear them and look at the sky, what color is the sky to you? Red. And you'll be like, wow, how red is the sky? So beautiful. And then your brother next to you will say, look at you, you're so retarded. And you'll be like, ah, why are you yabbing me now? And your brother will say to you, in all honesty, that why are you calling a green sky red? Because the lenses, you know those plastic lenses, are colored green. And then your other sibling or friend will laugh at you and say, hey, all your years in nursery school, you didn't learn anything about colors. Something that is clearly blue. People are arguing whether it's red or green. Now, by this time, the purple guy is not even going to bother talking to you because they are convinced that you have lost your mind. So whatever you look at is reflected at you based on the lenses that you're looking through. And a lot of us go into God's word with a preconceived notion as opposed to going in blank and letting the word tell us what he wants to say. Let the word tell us what he wants to say. And that's why the religion is rearing its ugly head because we, we are in a, in, a, in, a, in a battle. The contention for the faith is that against what the word actually says versus what men have interpreted the word to say, especially as it suited their personal proclivities, self-aggrandizement, ministerial aggrandizement. Hallelujah. The next word in, Col in Colossians 2, I said let me know if you're getting this, okay? The next word in Colossians 2 after philosophy is the word empty deceit. Empty deceit that comes from the traditions of men. The traditions of men. The word traditions is the word paradosis. P-A-R-A-D-O-S-I-S. -S, paradosis. That's the word for traditions. And it just means something handed over, passed down from one generation to another. Especially what is done by word of mouth or writing. Paradosis paradosis that's what word traditions of men beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy philosophia i've taken time to explain that and empty deceit according to the traditions paradoxes of men and according to the basic principles of the world the world you know in this house is the word cosmos K-O-S-M-O-S, -O from which you get the word cosmopolitan that shows different melting pots of different people coming together in an organized system. Cosmos, cosmopolitan, okay? That's the word cosmos in the Greek. K-O-S-M-O-S, -O that's the word cosmos, and it means worldly affairs, yeah? Or secular affairs, or an, a system of, an earthly system of doing things. That's the word, that's the word cosmos. It says, be aware lest anyone deceive you or cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. This dichotomy therefore suggests that there are two ways to go when it comes to knowledge. According to Christ and the rest. Does that make sense? Philosophies, empty words, traditions of men, basic principles of this world on the one side. On the other side, standing distinct and sacrosanct and unfettered and un, unhinged, un, un, not unhinged, that's not the word I'm looking for. Untainted is the word I'm, I'm looking for. Untainted by anything else. 
Christ. The TPT says, beware that no one distracts you or intimidates you in their attempts to lead you away from Christ. By pretending to be full of wisdom when they are filled with endless arguments of human logic. For they operate with humanistic and clouded judgments based on the mindset of the world's system and not the anointed truths of the anointed one. I read it again. Beware that no one distracts you or intimidates you in their attempts to lead you away from Christ's fullness by pretending to be full of wisdom when they are filled with endless arguments of human logic. For they operate with humanistic and clouded judgments based on the mindset of this world system and not the anointed truths of the anointed one. Beware, for he is the complete fullness of deity in living form. And our own completeness is now found in him and not in philosophy, not in paradoxes, not in the cosmos, but in the Christos. In Christ, that's what the anointed one means. That's the Christos, the, the anointed one and his anointing. That's the meaning of Christ, in case you didn't know. Just put that, Christos, the anointed one and his anointing together. That's the word Christos. Hallelujah. You cannot mix the word with human traditions and philosophies. Then I said something provocative in the states in, in, in the in the against this backdrop. I said two weeks ago, three weeks ago, or even earlier, that that means the sayings of your village elders and your and the traditions of your people cannot explain the scriptures. Let the masquerades run all around your village the way they want to run. They do not explain the scriptures. They do not explain the workings of God. So be careful when you're worshipping God and causing the masquerade that comes out in the afternoon to play when all the smaller masquerades have hidden. You know, there's these things we chant in Igbo particularly and Yoruba when it comes to, to God. And we begin to call him names that he didn't call you to call him. Names he didn't give himself. We abandon all the names that he refers to himself as. The word of God. Faithful and true, righteous and just one, everlasting father, prince of peace, king of kings, lord of the host of Israel, the God of Zion. We forget and we forgo all the things that God describes himself by because it's not good enough now. Everybody's using that. And then you want to now call him the one in your village. You are the masquerade that when you come out, the smaller masquerades run away. Where is it written? Where is it written? Where is it spoken? Where did the gospel, the evangelion, where did we see examples where it needs to borrow from the philosophy of your village? Is anybody getting what I'm saying? Or am I speaking to myself? Where do you see that written where you are preaching the word of God, bringing epignosis, supposed to be bringing epignosis as is revealed in Christ? And you have to borrow from the sayings of your people. Cosmos sayings. Cosmopolitan sayings. Paradosis sayings. Philosophia sayings. Our people say. And so you see men of God, pastors, running churches the way they run village towns meeting. So we enter your office. And we must kneel down on the floor and crawl towards your desk. 
Because that's the way they do it when they go to visit the chief priest in your village shrine. There's a fine line between honor and intimidation and fear. It's a fine line. It's a fine line. It's only in Africa that a child is afraid to approach, afraid to approach his father. Only in Africa. Out there, they go, hey, dad. Hey, pops. But in Africa, you, you first of all rehearse what you are wanting to enter your father's room and say. Who knows what I'm talking about? You practice it first in your head for the most of you. And then you start running to your father's room. You never enter your father's room running. Hello? You have calculated how many miles per hour you're traveling. As you're approaching the door of your father's room, you slow down and you know exactly when to stop. Breathe in. Breathe out. You, you first of all knock. And then you wait. Who is that? You say your name. If you are 20 in your family, you call your serial number. Because your father might not remember your name. Who knows what I'm talking about? So if you are 35 children, you just take numbers. 1, 2, 3, 17, 24. <laughs> and then you enter, you state your business. As soon as you really state your business, what next? You're out. And so we enter ministry with that mindset. Is this helping anybody? Stay with me. We enter ministry with that mindset. And we make the people that God has given us charge over afraid to approach us. Because every time we see you, like, oh, oh, yes, how are you? Bless you. Bless you. Uh-huh. At that point, everything you want to say has frozen. Has totally frozen. You know where you learned that from? Your village people. Paradoxes. Stuff that has been handed down from one generation. Is it helping anybody? Tradition. What has been handed down from one generation to another. You have never questioned it. You have never questioned it. The first day I asked a question like, where was the church mandated to organize a wedding? Nobody could answer me till today. Our forefathers did it. Isn't that what Samaritan woman told Jesus? Our forefathers worshipped on this mountain. No? John chapter 4. Paradoxes. She never understood why. She never questioned why. She only went to the well for water. And then boom, she's meeting somebody else. And she's like, I perceive. Perception comes in. I perceive you're a prophet. Something has been bothering me since every time I come to this well that is said to be Jacob's well and it's in Samaria. Something has been bothering me. You know, our, our forefathers worshipped on this mountain. But the Jews are saying that it's Jerusalem. Why is the place to worship? That's somebody who had gotten fed up of religion. And who knows if that was even why she just kept hanging with one guy after the other. To feel a vacuum that nothing else could feel. To feel a vacuum that religion on the mountain could not feel. And so she's hanging from one place to another hoping to find soccer. And she sees this Jesus and she says, I perceive you are different from all the men I've been with. I, I, I perceive there's something different about you. I, let, me, let me ask you, why this, can we solve this worship conundrum once and for all? Because I'm tired of tradition. She had been looking for somebody to ask. But unfortunately, no other person came that way because they were Samaritans. Everybody who was coming that way would have to avoid Samaria to go where they were going. So John makes it clear that for Jesus, he was in unavoidable. Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's how, John, that's how John puts it in chapter 4. Jesus was traveling and he had to go through. The route that Jesus took set him on course through Samaria. Hallelujah.
They cannot be that. That's, that's paradosis. That's tradition. Handed down. And so we come to church and we're running church according to tradition. You want the choir to dress the way that the maidens in your hometown dress. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. Our standard for morality is not scripture. Our standard for morality is tradition. It's paradoxes. Our standard for community is not scripture. Our standard for community is tradition. And Paul says, beware lest anyone use tradition to bamboozle you. Our people have a proverb. Save it for your town's meeting. The thief people say, save it for thief meeting. But not for the explanation of the scripture. Scripture is sufficient to explain itself. Scripture is sufficient to explain himself. Scripture is sufficient to explain itself. Grafe. Scripture is sufficient to explain himself. Logos. Keep tradition out of it. Keep tra- and this is where the divisions exist. And then you realize that if we're going to be honest with ourselves, there's no reason why there should be a division. There's no reason why there should be denominations. There's no, what, what are we diverging on the basis of? When our tradition is the culture of heaven. Philippians 3 and 20. Put up in the New King James first. It says, for our citizenship. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Our citizenship, for our citizenship, not will be in heaven. Our citizenship is. Somebody say is. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Switch the TPT, Philippians 3.20. Interesting. But we are a colony of heaven on earth. We are a colony of heaven on earth. We are a colony of heaven on earth. We are a colony. Of heaven on earth. If you go to a Dutch settlement when when Africa was still being colonized, if you went to a British settlement in Calabar or a British settlement in, in Benin or a British settlement in Lokoja or a British settlement in Jeba, where else do we have British or Bonnie Island? Yeah, Potakot. Um, where else? We had a few. Um, even Ikonic Bene had a, had a British outpost around the era of the slave trade. If you went to British settlements or colonies in Africa, as dark as it was, the modus operandi was different inside the colony. They cooked the way they cook in England. They washed the way they wash in England. They talked the way they talk in England. They dispose of waste the way they dispose in England. The white guys didn't just come out in front of their house to wee. They created their own sewage. They created, they created their own purification. They, they had a, a way of doing things. They didn't dump that and pick on what we, what we had. That's why they've left us wearing their suit and calling it corporate. And wearing our suit and calling it traditional. That's why they've left us doing their wedding as white wedding. When white wedding is their traditional wedding. Because white wedding is the traditional wedding of the white man. That's why they've left you wearing socks and suit, suit to go to work and they call it corporate. Anything else that is not their suit to you is uncorporate. Meanwhile, they've left you fighting with the suits and they're going to work with t-shirts and jeans. And you're still trying to wear suit. Call it corporate. And now we're bringing you to church. 
Every church worker must dress corporate. By whose definition? Paradosis. Pastor cannot wear jeans. By whose definition? Paradosis. You cannot be taken serious because you're not wearing a suit. By whose definition? Paradosis. Stuff that has been handed down. And these things beclouds the understanding of the believer to receive the gospel. You can't mix the word with human traditions. Let's go back to the scripture. Philippians 3.20 But we are a colony of heaven on earth as we cling tightly to our Lord giver, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our human bodies and transfigure us into the identical likeness of his glorified body. We are a colony of heaven and earth. How does the NLT, how does the NLT put this? But we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of heaven. The message. Our citizenship is in heaven. But there's far more to life for us, the message says. We are citizens of high heaven. Now, if you're a citizen of heaven and you're living in a colony, who determines how you live? High heaven, right? Where you're from. Where you're from. So our embassy is a reflection of us. Does that make sense? If you enter, I don't know about Nigeria, but at least the, um, the, the, the British High Commission in, in, in the Gambia is a whole, should I say, city. You know, they live in there. They have schools in there for their kids. You know, they have their clubs and everything. for the, Yeah, everything happens inside the compound of the High Commission. They have their own power. They have their own sewage system, their own clinic. You know, like, it's like some of these oil companies here. If you enter like, you know, uh, Chevron Town or whatever in Port Harcourt, you think you entered a whole different world. If you go to Bonny Island, for instance, you'll be shocked at what you see. 24-hour power supply in the areas of the oil companies, the NLNG companies. 24 hours, golf courses, swimming pools, manicured lawns in Nigeria. Because they transform that place into the image of who they represent. Your citizenship is not from your village. Your village just acted as a coin do it to bring a citizen of heaven into the earth. Your village just has the privilege of being able to say that they conducted you into earth to carry out heaven's affairs on her behalf. Your citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, your conduct comes from heaven. Your behavior comes from heaven. Your understanding comes from heaven. Not from the cosmos. Are you following me tonight? Not from the cosmos. Not from the cosmos. You can't mix the word with human traditions and philosophies. The sayings of your people cannot explain scripture. Leave it out. Save it for your meetings. And that's why you now you're understanding in this house why in our local church I specifically emphasize not using any language in the gathering of the brethren that every brethren cannot understand. It's wrong. It's, it's anti-church. It's anti-church for us to be gathered as saints. All of us are here. And then two people start to speak in a language that isolates them from everybody else in the house. That's anti-church. Oh, but what we're saying is, is not wrong now. What we're saying is not bad. It doesn't matter. What matters is there's koinonia going on and people have removed themselves from it. Because they have removed what binds us together. Removed what binds us together. And then we go on along those lines. Our people with our people. Our people, our people. Our people. So you now have church. The church now has ethic association. Ibibi association. You know what I mean? A Northern Christians association of this church. Is that not so? 
Southwestern Association of this church. And everybody's trying to push their own individual agendas along ethnic lines instead of pushing a collective agenda along citizenship lines. That's why the church is so messed up. Instead of conducting our affairs along citizenship lines, we're conducting them along ethnic lines. Fulani People's Association, progressive Anang Christian believers, tongue talkers of Nigeria, Igbo Christian Forum of what abiding house? Might as well have traders union in church, no? Might as well politicize and traditionalize the whole church. But that's not the church Christ died for. It might sound funny to some of you, but this is the heart of the Father concerning the church. This is the heart of the Father concerning the church. And I'm not exempt from it myself. It's a conscious, it's an acquired discipline. It's something we must all walk towards. Consciously that we're not dividing what Christ came and said in Ephesians 2. He made one people out of the two. One people out of the two. He's our peace who divided the middle wall. Why are we erecting the walls that he tore down in his flesh? Walls he tore down in his flesh. Oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Open our eyes to this, Lord. Open our eyes to this. Open our eyes to see. Open our eyes to see. Ah. Thank you, Father. Let me try and continue. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You cannot mix the gospel, the word of God, with tradition and your village sayings. Let me try and go on. Third sub-point. First one was you cannot mix the law and grace, right? Second one was you can't mix the law with human, the word of human traditions and philosophies. And the next one. You can't mix the word in the name of balance. The word of God is not for balancing. The word of God is balance itself, himself, that needs right dividing. That is one word that has plagued the, be the believers. And it's not the word that's even found in scripture, you know. It's a, it's a word we coined. On, on God's behalf. English definition of the word balance. An even distribution of weight. Enabling something or someone to remain upright and steady. Of course, balance calls into question gravity. Right? Equilibrium physics. An even distribution of Weight, enabling someone to remain upright and steady. Or a situation in which different elements are equal to or are equal or in the correct proportions. The verb suggests that to balance something, the verb, the doing, means to put something in a steady position so that it does not fall. Now be thinking of how we have used the word balance, balance, balance. Jesus if you understand that the word of God is Christ yeah that's how you will use Jesus so much on one side that you fall that's how you use Jesus and on the other hand so much that you fall so we, you you need to put the right amount of Jesus on the left versus the right amount of Jesus on the right depending on how life is doing you because you know that skill never stays at equilibrium all the time do you understand? It depends on what you're dealing with on the scale. 
So you need to keep tilting the weights. Does that make sense? To keep the scale balanced. And that is why we have begun to, over the centuries, begun to pedal and dance around God's word and try to change the interpretations and the relevance to suit our own personal proclivities and inclinations. You want to help God to balance so that God does not tip over and fall. That's how God's word is. How you can use God's word to injure you. So we have to now give you another word to balance this one because this word by itself is dangerous to you. Then the word should have come with a disclaimer. Too much of this word of God is dangerous to your health and all obeyers are liable to die young. Hello? The Federal Ministry of Theology wants that too much application of the Bible in a particular direction can cause the Bible to blow up in your face. Therefore, for the measure that you use this, you must also use that so that you keep the weight evenly distributed. So some people end up using so much of this and they go down. Other people end up using so much of that and they go down. So we're trying to balance. The word of God is not for balancing, sir. The word of God is the balance of life. Hey, Colossians chapter 1 from verse 15. The word of God is the balance of life. See 115, he, referring to Jesus, the word, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth. By him all things were created. Heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created through the word and for the word. It continues in 17 and it says, And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Some other translations say, In him all things hold together. Stay in 17, switch to TPT. 117 TPT. He existed before anything was made. And now, everything finds completion in him. Excuse me. Everything finds completion in him. How then do you think that you that were created by him and for him is the one that God now needs to balance him so that he doesn't tip too much in one direction or tip too much in the other direction when in him you move, in him you live, in him you have your being. All things hold together in him. And now you are complete in him. And you can balance him? No, sir. You can only rightly divide and just before you quickly go, yeah, well, rightly dividing, is that not what it means? You know, divide a bit to this place or, or, or divide a little to that place. The word rightly div divide is a fashion word, is a fashion designing word in the Greek that comes from the Greek word orthotomio. O-T-H-O-R-T-O-M-E-O. Orthotomio. O-T-H-O-R-T-O-M-E-O. Orthotomio. 
and it's a word that it, that is used in fashion terms in 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 the, in the in the Greek, you know, Roman Empire, and it means to cut a straight line. That's the word rightly divide, not rightly divide as to remove this section to this place. Do you understand? And remove that section to that place, but to cut a straight line without any, to cut a straight line without any creases. You know, like when you're, when you're cutting a fabric and you, you use the chalk or whatever to, to draft the pattern and you follow it exactly cutting along the exact place that you are supposed to cut. Not a little to the left, not a little to the right. Because anything outside that will be you destroying the outcome of the fabric. So, 2 Timothy 15, 2.15, right? Says, therefore, that... The, uh, that uh, uh, study to show yourself approved, you know, study, and the word study is the word sporazo, which means to, to make effort, to apply yourself with dense effort. Study to show yourself approved, a workman that needs not to be ashamed. A workman, you see that? An artisan. Let's turn to it. Second Timothy 2.15. Thank you, Father. Second Timothy. 2.15. Orthotomio. 2 Timothy 2.15. Hallelujah. Let's, let's, let's see it in the New King James already. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. A workman that needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Rightly dividing the word of truth you know, uh, accurately handling the word of truth. Right? Let's see how the TPT puts it. Second Timothy 2.15 Always be eager to present yourself before God as a perfect and mature minister without shame as one who correctly explains the word of truth. Can you see that? As one who correctly explains the word of truth. As one who correctly explains the word of truth. One who correctly explains the word of truth. That's the word orthotomio, to cut. One who rightly divides the word of truth. To cut in a straight line, orthotomio, to handle accurately, to apportion correctly. That's the word orthotomio, to rightly divide the word of truth. So, a, a mature believer, one who yields to and is bound by the word of God as explained in Christ only, is one that knows that you cannot use one scripture as it were to cancel another as though the other scripture were wrong. And even where there are contradictions, even where there are contradictions, those contradictions explain each other in the light of Christ. Those contradictions explain each other in the light of Christ. Christ conscious believer is yielded to and bound by God's word in the light of Christ. And we said you cannot balance the word. The word of God is not for balancing. The word of God is for right division. And right division is from the word orthotomio that means to cut in a straight line. You're not bending one way or the other because at that point it's no longer the, the, the fault of the fabric. If it turns out bad, it's a fault of the, the cutter. 
you know, the fault of the designer. Just leave the light on. People can see me, people can hear me. Let's do that until I finish. You know, turn it towards me if you need to, to do more light or whatever. Is, is at that point, it's not the fault of the fabric. It's the fault of the designer. So at the point where there is, shall I say, a demerit or a disadvantage to, to the application of God's word, it, the fault is not from God's word, such that men need to add more weight to one side to balance it. Does that make sense? Or take away some weight from God's word because you have applied this too much. So let's take away weight in order to balance it. No. The fault is not the word. The word is perfect. It's the the applicator of the word, the teacher of the word, the person who is practicing the word, the person who is cutting the word that didn't cut it correctly. Does that make sense? And that's right division. And this comes by teaching, by instruction, by study, and by practice in the light of Christ. In the light of Christ. So before somebody comes and says to you, Upon Mount Zion, I think that's Obadiah, I think he's 14, I believe. Upon Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance, and the sons of God shall possess their possessions. Who is the possession of the sons of God? Christ, not your car, your house. He's your portion. David understood that even in his promissory sense. He said, my heart and my flesh. Many times they fail, but, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion, for your portion is Christ. Your possession, the possession God promised you is Christ. The promise God promised you is Christ. And guess what? Christ is Mount Zion. So Hebrews comes in 10 and says, but you have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, Hebrews 12 and 18. Hebrews 12 and 18. For you have not come to the mountain that might be touched and burnt with fire, and blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, blah, blah, blah. But in verse 22, Hebrews 12, 22, it says, but you have come to Mount Zion. Not you will come, sir. Not if you, if, you, if you behave well, you will come. I saw something that troubled me yesterday online. And it says, the person says that new birth does not mean eternal life. Hey, pastor, that new birth does not mean eternal salvation. That eternal salvation just starts with new birth. So when you come into new birth, then by your clinging onto the faith and holding onto the faith, you now come into eternal life. Jesus said, I am come. Not I will come. I am come that they may have life and have it eternal. The only quality of life God has to give is eternal. He cannot give a temporary life when he is eternal in being. And this is why we need to teach this word so that God's people are able to rightly divide it and distinguish it from all the nonsense that's going on out there. It's not balancing. Bear in mind what I explained about balancing. Let's put a little more weight here. There's not enough by word here. Let's take a little bit more weight on this side so that it can balance here. No, it's for you to rightly cut through it. Rightly, rightly navigate your way through it. Correctly explain, correctly apply, correctly understand, correctly interpret God's word in the light of Christ. Not you will come to Mount Zion for deliverance. You have come to Mount Zion. He has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness. Oh, the witches that are chasing you now are not from the kingdom of darkness. 
So he delivered you from the kingdom of darkness, according to Colossians 1, and into the, translated into the kingdom of the son of his love. But he, we know that he delivered you, but you need to go through deliverance to be rid of the villages of the witches from your father's village. Ancestral wickedness and people, and, and people from your father's house. All tasks from your father's house. The beauty of God and his work in Christ is for you to even know that there is a physical shrine in your father's house and God is doing what he's doing with you regardless of what is happening to that place. So, because what God is, so God cannot, God cannot do what He wants to do in your life until He breaks what a man built. God cannot do what He wants to do in your life until He, until he undoes what a man did. Until we go to your village and dig out the pot and break it, shouting, God of Elijah, send that fire. Only then will you be free. Who the Son of Man makes free, He didn't set you free. As you arrived born again, you were fashioned free. So you, born again, have never been bound. You, this new creation, if any man be in Christ, is a new creation. You arrived, you were made. Who the Son of God makes free, is free indeed. Who the Son of God shall make free. So that was your jailbreak at the cross. At the cross, you were made free. Come and trouble me with witches and wizards from my father's house. When I have come to Mount Zion. Close your eyes, close your eyes, close your eyes. There's angels all over here. Don't move. If you move, you jam an angel. When we have come, look at it. Hebrews 12, 22. You have come. See, I have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God. I have come to the city of the living God. I have come to the city of the living God. And what is the city? Shh. Who is the city of the living God? Let's put a hand here in Hebrews 12. And let's go to Galatians chapter 4. And you will see the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see that the moment you transition from the law into grace, you entered from the old or physical Jerusalem into the other. So you know you don't need anything about a pilgrimage to nowhere to add to your understanding of your reality as a son of God. You don't need to. You don't need to. You don't need to. This thing is by faith. It's not by seeing where Jesus walked. Uh, then it's not of faith now. Romans eleven six. Did I say Galatians four? four? Romans eleven six. <laughs> We'll come back to Galatians 4. Romans eleven six. 6. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, then it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Do we have this scripture in the TPT? Oh, thank you. See me that's looking for where to close. And, and, and I'm getting even more excited. Okay. Romans eleven sixty PT. And since don't leave me, people, don't leave me. Please don't leave me. I have so false for you. Wisdom. Stay with me. When Hebrews twelve, right? And then I call Galatians four. But we took a shortcut. Yeah, we entered through Romans, you know. So now we are you know Calabria is by everywhere. So we are in Galatians four by Romans eleven six. Ahem. Hallelujah. And since it is by God's grace, it can't be a matter 
of their good works. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a gift of grace, but earned by human effort. Is that the end of that verse? Earned by human effort. So, oh man, my faith has taken a new turn because you saw where Jesus walked. No, sir. Your sensual conviction is what has been affected. Your sensual con- conviction. It's not, that's not what we're boasting. We don't boast in JP. Boasting in any man being Christ. The new creation. Not that we saw Jerusalem. When we are in the heavenly Jerusalem, that Jerusalem you are going to see is synonymous with the law and the dispensation that passed. That wailing wall you go and face and wrap your little piece of paper that has your prayer point and choke it inside a hole in the wall and face the east and start to pray. That was just a shadow. It was a shadow. You have come to the city of God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Somebody say the real Jerusalem is here. Galatians chapter 4. We have arrived there now. Galatians chapter 4. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 4. 21. Galatians 4, 21. Tell me you who desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? <laughs> For it is written that Abraham had two sons. The one by the bondwoman and the other by a free woman. Stay in 22. Switch to TPT. Tell me, do you want to go back living to living strictly by the law? Haven't you ever listened to what the law really says? Have you forgotten that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave girl, that is Hagar, and the other by the free woman, that is Sarah? Ishmael, the son of the slave girl, was a child of the natural realm. But Isaac, the son of the free woman, was born supernaturally by the Spirit. A child of the promise of God. You see how God appeared to Abraham and said, your wife will conceive. Yeah? Your wife will conceive in due time. The same way that God appeared through the angel to Mary and said, you'll conceive by the Holy Ghost. 24. These two women and their sons, these two women and their sons represent or express an allegory and become symbols of two covenants. The first covenant was born on Mount Sinai. Ishmael was not born on Mount Sinai. But what Israel, Ishmael was given to represent 430 years later was Mount Sinai, the law. So Ishmael was born 430 years earlier to typify the law that was born on Mount Sinai where Moses received the law. Are you following me? Birthing children into slavery. That's what the law did. You said a chapter earlier in Galatians 3. Holding us in bondage until faith. Children born to Hagar, 25. For Hagar, clearly is written, represents the law given at Mount Sinai in Arabia. <laughs> it gets worse. The Hagar metaphor corresponds to the earthly Jerusalem of today who are currently in bondage. Who are currently in bondage. What are you drawing for me, Jerusalem, that is currently today in bondage? 26, in contrast, somebody say in contrast. There is a heavenly Jerusalem above us, which is our true mother. She is the free woman, birthing children into freedom. 28, dear friends, just like Isaac, 
we are now the true children who inherit the kingdom promises. We are now the true children who inherit the kingdom promises. With this understanding, go back to Hebrews 12. We'll probably end there. 22. Thank you, Father. But you have come to Mount Zion. Go to switch to, to the TPT. And to the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come already come near to God. Uh-huh. In a totally different realm, the Zion realm. For we have entered, somebody say we have entered, into the city of the living God, which is the new Jerusalem in heaven. Where have you entered? The city of the living God, where? In heaven. Where are you? In heaven. Why are you trying to make it? Why are you trying to make it? You have entered. You have come. So if upon Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, I'm just giving you a simple example of how to read the word of God in the light of Christ only. If upon Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and the sons of God shall possess their possessions, it's no longer a promise for the New Testament believer. It's a fulfillment. Because the New Testament believer has come to Mount Zion. Uh, did you get what I just explained to you? The New Testament believer is not going to come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is not where your, your pastor prophesies. Mount Zion is not where your G.O. said upon this mountain. Mount Zion is Christ. And yes, upon Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. Because what happened upon Mount Zion? You have, he has delivered us. So our deliverance is past tense. It's not future tense. He hath delivered us. We are now inheritors of the promise. We are now into the promise. We are in the new Jerusalem. We are in the city of God. We are in Mount Zion. Even juicier. Mount Zion is in me. I carry the fullness of the new city of God, the new Jerusalem. I carry Mount Zion. I'm not looking for deliverance. I carry deliverance. I dispense deliverance. That is the word of God in the light of Christ only. A lot of believers are wallowing in ignorance. Wallowing in self-pity and wallowing in, in deprivation. Because we are trying to grasp by human effort what has been achieved and is only accessible in Christ. Hallelujah. We must rightly divide the word of truth. We must rightly divide. I was going to touch another one, but I, th I thought let me leave that. <laughs> another example. Because it's an example of, 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 Galatia, of Romans chapter 3. I think I mentioned that when I left it. There's an example of Romans chapter 3, for instance, where it says, um, dealing with, 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 with righteousness apart from the law, you know, coming, and then talking about Abraham, you know, and then he comes to verse 27 of Romans 3, and he says, what is boasting then, or where is boasting then, is excluded. By, by what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. And the law of faith is grace. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, right? It's the law of faith. And then 28 says, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Hmm? Apart from the deed of the law. Romans chapter 4, it continues the same conversation, it continues in chapter 4, and verse 5. And Romans 4, 5 says, But to him... Who does not work, <laughs> but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for 
righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Is it clear? James chapter 2. Orthotomio. Rightly divide the word of God. You will not be arguing with people blindly. Whether they agree with you or not, you just know that the word, this is the word of God rightly divided. If they agree, praise God. If they don't agree, no problem. If their salvation is temporal, enjoy yourself. Don't come and corrupt or try to corrupt my eternal. Enjoy your one that you can lose. James 2, 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Let's do comparison. Com comparison. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And when you go out there, this is what people will hit you with. And you must learn to orthotomio. God's word. Cut it rightly. How can you say that it's not of him, it's not me of works? You know, how? When the Bible says clearly, you should walk out your salvation. You know, walk out. Here you go, I'm going to walk out with fear and trembling. Can faith save him? If your brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, depart in faith, in peace, be warmed and filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's only one God. You do well. Even demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Now see the controversy. 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then he, he, was, he was called the friend of God. 24. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Don't try to teach until you have learned the word. Don't be in a hurry. And then we start to talk. This faith, are we talking soteria? Sozo? From sin? Or are we talking that pistis? Faith doctrine, faith life is ineffective for the believer without what you do to show it. Because you can say, I'm a child of God. You can say, I love Jesus. You can quote all the scriptures. That's doctrine, faith, pistis, without something that you're doing, ergon. Work is, the, work is the Greek word ergon, E-R-G-O-N. Without ergon to show, to put your works, your ergon, where your pistis is. So as far as your brother who is hungry is concerned, your faith is dead to him. In the context of what, um, uncle, give us, I've not seen it in the TPT before, but give us James 2.14 in the TPT. My dear brothers and sisters, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but demonstrates no good works to prove it? How could this kind of faith save anyone? Saving anyone is referring to who? You see it in verse 15. Don't try to ex ex um, 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 go ahead of the text. 
you understand? Let the text explain itself. Save anyone. Does that refer to salvation? It says, if you have faith, how can it, and you're not doing something about it, how can it save anyone? It doesn't say, how can it save you? Are we there? 15. If a brother or sister, for example, right? 15. If a brother or sister in the faith is poorly clothed and hungry, and you leave them saying, goodbye, I hope you stay warm and have plenty to eat. But you don't provide them with a coat or even a cup of soup. What good is your faith as concerning saving or helping that brother in time of need? Does that make sense? 2017. So then, faith that doesn't involve action is funny. But someone might object and say, verse 18, one person has faith, another person has works. Go ahead then and prove to me that you have faith without works and I will show you faith by my works as proof that I believe. It's not that I'm trying to believe. I believe, but let me just give you proof that I believe. You can believe all you want that there is one true God. That's wonderful. But even the demons know this and tremble with fear before him. Yet, they are unchanged. They remain demons. All feeble sons of Adam. Do you need further evidence that faith divorced from good works is phony? Wasn't our ancestor Adam found righteous before God because of his works when he offered? So he didn't say, I believe and sit at home. He said, I believe, I'm going to do this. And actually set out to do it. God had to stop him. So it's not, this is not faith for salvation and works that qualify you to be saved. It is faith consistent with Titus chapter 2, verse, verse, I need verse 14, but for context, I will go from verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and what he lost, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own people zealous for good works. We are his craftsmanship, workmanship, Ephesians 2, 14, created in Christ Jesus in Christ, if anyone be in Christ, yeah? Created in Christ Jesus unto good works that God preordained that we should walk in them. We are created unto good works. We're not created by good works. Are you following me? We're not saved by good works. We are saved unto good works. So now you are saved, you believe, you come into doctrine and that doctrine must be backed up by action. That's the responsibility of sonship. It's not talking about faith without works is dead in the sense that you must do something in order to be saved. Does that make sense? That's the right division of truth. Simply put. Not balance. You can't mix the word of God in the name of balance. Next week we'll continue with the other bit of this same point, <laughs> the Christ-conscious believer is yielded to and bound by God's word in the light of Christ only. And when that is involved, when that is concerned, there can be no negotiation. There can be no 
negotiation. In Daniel chapter 3, you see the three Hebrew boys, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah, who were renamed by the Babylonian names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The, the seraphs of the king had gone and said, you know, if he pleases my lord, the king, let him build up a statue of gold. And at the blast of the trumpet, the lyre, the trumpet, the flute, let everybody bow to the king. And these three boys, who were also governors in the, in the cabinet, refused. And they bring them before the king, and the king said, ah, is what I'm hearing true? They stood before him, proud in their identity, because somehow they had seen he who saves to the uttermost in the promissory sense. Don't forget, in the Old Testament, people saw Jesus. Even if they didn't understand the fullness of what they saw, they saw the pre-incarnate Jesus, the Jesus apart from bodily form. It was bodily form that Mary brought him. Do you understand? But Jesus, the spirit, was conducted by the Father. That's why Angel said, he that is coming upon you shall come by the Holy Ghost. Do you understand? By the Holy Ghost. You just gave birth to a body that the Holy Ghost inhabited. Because the spirits do not walk without a body. Do you understand? So they saw, they saw a pre-incarnate Jesus, a pre, pre-human body Jesus. They had encounters with him. Samson's father had an encounter with Jesus. He said, sit here. Wait, let me go and bring a sacrifice and offer to you. You don't give sacrifice to angels. I don't want to get into those things. You don't give sacrifice to angels. You don't see, let me worship you. You don't fall down and worship an angel. How do we know that John in Revelation saw an angel who began to speak to him and he, he fell down to worship. The angel rebuked him and said, hey, worship holy Jesus. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You remember that? So angels don't receive worship. Angels are lower than men on, on the earth. Angels are lower than sons of God. When sons of God are having interactions of the divine nature with the Father, angels keep quiet. They don't talk. They are ministering spirits. They are boy boys to ears of salvation. Angels are not what you look forward to. Angels is, angel is not a spiritual ambition for a son of God. It's not a spiritual ambition that you want to see angels. You want to walk with angels. Angel, no, angels are at your command. That's the believer's authority. Angels are under you. They are subject to you. They don't receive worship. They worship. And then they envy your worship because your worship rings in the annals of heaven beyond theirs. And so Samson's father said, hold, hold on. His name was Manoah. He says, hold on, I'll come and bring a sacrifice. And fire appeared and ate the altar up. Ate up the sacrifice. He received it. Who appeared to Hagar in Genesis chapter 16? Jesus, pre-incarnate. And what did she say when she saw? She said, hey, I have seen him who sees me. Therefore, the name of the place is called Bela Hairoi. Well of the one who sees me. Men encountered Jesus pre-incarnate. They saw him in dreams and visions. They wrote of him as their limited understanding allowed them to. But they navigated the waters of eternity as concerning salvation. They navigated those waters. They saw what was coming. They wished for this day that you and I live in because they saw he who was to come. Yeshua, Hamashiach, pre-incarnate, and they worshipped him. And these three boys said, hey, we have seen he who is coming and is greater than you, O king. At the time when Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest king in the history of eternity and time passed in human terms at his time. They said, we are not careful to answer you. Can you imagine standing before the most powerful human being in the earth at that time and saying, you know what, we don't, we're not going to dignify you with an answer in this matter. 
In other words, all king, with all due respect, we don't respect you that much. Did you hear what I said? With all due respect, sir, we don't respect you like that. There was no negotiation when it, come, when it came to them obeying God's word. I said, we're not careful to answer you in this matter. Put, up, put it up in, 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 in the message transition, Daniel chapter, chapter 3, verse 15. Do I have verse 15? Okay, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered King Nebuchadnezzar. They said, your threat means nothing to us. Keep going. Your threat means nothing to us. If you throw us in the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else you might cook up, O king. See verse 18. But even if he doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, O king. We still wouldn't serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. 15 years ago, I announced, I think I just arrived in England or somewhere, I announced, I said, I believe God because he is real. And even if he's not real, he's the best lie to believe. Even if God is not true, go and check all the lies. Check all the religious lies. If God is not true, he's still the best lie to believe. Nothing comes close. No promise comes close. If you're going to deceive me, you can't use the, the, the promises of Islam. What is 70 virgins? What is 70 virgins? Except to a perverse mind. What promise does any religion have that rivals the promise of God in Christ, even if it were not true? There's none. Go and check. So they stand before the king and they say, you know what? God can deliver us. <laughs> but even if he chooses to not deliver us, you are too small for us to negotiate about. You're too small for us to compromise. You're too small for us to change our conviction. We are fully persuaded. We have gone too far in this. We can't bend for you. Oh, king. <laughs> oh, king, there's another king, sir. Oh, king. There's a king of you, sir. We can't bow to him and bow to you, sir. With all respect, sir. We don't respect you that much, sir. With all respect, sir, we have respect for a greater king, sir. And he can deliver us, sir. But even if he doesn't, you're too small. As sons of God, we are too big to worship a mortal. That's what they were telling Rebecca. It was a prophetic declaration. As sons of God, who have come into the knowledge of who we are in Christ, we can't bow to mammon. We can't bow to the God of this age, the Babylonian God. There was a type and shadow of the glory that was to come for sons of God in Christ and his sacrifice. There was a type and shadow. And they said, we're not negotiating with you about this. What we have seen is greater than this reality. We don't see it. We might not even enter that day. But we have read. You know how he says of Daniel that I, Daniel, understood by the books what was written. Daniel understood by the books. That the day of the deliverance of Israel was near. And the day of the deliverance of Israel was synonymous with the day of the deliverance of the nations by Jesus the Messiah. He said, I understood by books. And it was the same, they were contemporaries of Daniel, remember? They were contemporaries, the same Hebrew boys who were taken and raised in the palace. Who said they would not contaminate themselves with the king's meat or food. They were contemporaries. So what Daniel knew, they knew. What Daniel knew, they knew. And it was in the same vein. That Daniel, when they came to threaten him three chapters or four chapters later, and said, ah, we have, we have, and this time it was Darius that was in charge. And, and, and they said, you know what, let's pray to only you. And the king said, yeah, I like it, it sounds good. And, and 
as was his custom, the Bible says, Daniel opened his window. Nothing changed because the king uttered a decree. It's not just just instructive that Daniel did not stop or negotiate. It's that he didn't do anything different. Do you understand? As was his custom. That's what the Bible says. As was his custom. He just opened and three times a day. He will bless the Lord and face the east towards Jerusalem. Towards Jerusalem. As symbolic of the new Jerusalem that he was praying into. That nothing in the noun, in the law, could stop him. He didn't negotiate. He put his eyes towards the city whose builder and founder is God. As symbolized by this Ishmael that was the Lord that was at work in that season, in that era. No negotiation. And then you come. They flogged the apostles in the book of Acts. Flogged them and said, promise us. We only have one condition to give you. Don't preach in that name again. They say, ha, 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 king. Sorry, sir. We must obey God rather than man. That same afternoon, they went to the market square the village teaching and preaching the name that they had been flogged to keep quiet about we don't negotiate so when you see us come and declare drag me in a wheelchair i will teach the gospel my body will respond it's because there has there, there is antecedents that have been set for us in scripture there's antecedents is anybody hearing me there's antecedents do you do you believe this word enough to obey do you believe enough to obey drag you out I will speak, grace will come. My body will understand that it is not the boss. With respect, O body. With due respect, O flesh. With due respect, my uncle died. With due respect, I lost a son. With due respect, I lost a job. With due respect, I'm sick. With due respect, I'm broke. With due respect, but you know what? I I don't respect you that much. As he who is greater. You can't negotiate. You can't. You can't negotiate. That's what was set before us. Even Jesus, he was given options, right? In Matthew 4 and Luke 4, when the devil came to, 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 to tempt him. If, if you're a son of God, do this. I don't have to. I don't have to. There's no place in the obedience of God's word to negotiate with God. There's no place. There's no place. No place. No strange voices. <sighs> I'm, I'm tempted to continue, but I'll stop here. How, how obedient are we, people, to God's word? How set are we that no matter the cost, we're going to be a word-abiding people? That no matter the cost, we're going to be a word-abiding people. No matter what life throws at us. God is not God because he gave you a car. He's not God because he gave you a house. He's not God because he gave you a child. I'm not saying he doesn't do that. Those are makarios. But you can get those things without the blessing. So that can be the focus. But that's not why he's good. That's not why he's God. That's not why you obey him. Because you know he will bless you. But because you know that I'm a son. My citizenship is of heaven. I'm here as a colony of heaven and earth. Therefore, my modus operandi, my, my operational manual, my constitution is of heaven. Is of heaven. What guides me is of heaven. What guides me is God's word. And I kill myself doing it. I fall forward doing it. I'm, I, I stumble forward doing it. I lose everything. Paul says the things I counted as, 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 as gain, I counted them as loss for the excellency of the gospel. Philippians chapter 3. That I may know him. And guess what the next thing he says? That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. Along with the fellowship 
of his suffering. Paul was saying, I want, please, count me worthy of suffering small for Jesus. The fellowship of his suffering. The fellowship of his suffering. If Jesus suffered, I want to suffer on, on an account of Jesus. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Count me worthy was his prayer. Count me worthy to take a blow or two for you, Jesus. You have done so much for me. And if I'm gonna if I'm gonna get slapped preaching the gospel, Lord, count me worthy of a slap. Paul was saying, Count me worthy of suffering, of partaking, you know, koinonia. Allow me the joy now, Jesus, to suffer with you small because of the glories that follow. Don't negotiate. What is the word? It will not change because of your circumstance. Instead, you will stand on it and by it cause your circumstance to change. And then there are times where of necessity, sir, auntie, your circumstance will not change. So that your faith is tested. Go and check, fully persuaded. So that your faith is tested. We can see where your convictions lie. We are word-abiding people. The word is for doing. And we can do it one little step at a time. One little obedience step at a time. You are told to forgive. Forgive. Don't think about it. Don't think about it. Don't process it. Sound like this boy. You say, we're not careful to answer you, Satan. You will not find any parking space here. Malice, get rid of it. It's not a prayer point. It's not a foul spirit. Immorality, dismiss it. Stinginess, retire it. There's grace to give. There's, it's a grace. You have it. There's grace to give. Give. Don't think about it. Don't be afraid of an empty wallet. That's not what prosperity is. Prosperity is not in the credit alert or the, 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 your, your bank account balance. That's not prosperity. Prosperity is that regardless of what you have or don't have, your needs are met per time. And God blesses you to be a blessing to others. I'm not afraid of an empty wallet. I'm not afraid of it. Those people that walk me know me. I'm not afraid of an empty wallet. I'm not afraid of an empty bank account. What's that? When it's time to do what he would do, he would do it. Doesn't need a bank account. He would do it. And then you understand that this giving is a grace. What do you have, Paul asked them, that has not been given to you of God? If it's been given to you of God, why do you act like you got it yourself? You're struggling with 1,000, struggling with 5,000, struggling. The Lord says, do this. Just do it. Do it. No, no, no negotiation. Father, can I do it later? Can I do it tomorrow? Can I do it this way? How about if I do it in this version? Would you still be okay? We are sons. The word is Christ. You're not negotiating with him. You're becoming him. That means he leads and you follow. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Just pray in the spirit for a very short while. Just pray in the spirit. This concludes this message. Thank you for listening and we hope it has been a blessing to you. For inquiries and further information, please send us an email to info at the or visit our social media platforms.